0: Follow the show on Twitter at Best Song Podcast, where you can participate in polls, talk about your favorite movie songs, and dive deeper into the rich history of movie music. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff
1: Cummings. Welcome back to the show. The Academy's music branch made a huge change in the way the five songs were nominated each year beginning in 1958. In previous years, music branch members wrote down their top songs of the year in order of preference, and using the preferential ballot counting method that I outlined a few episodes ago, the five nominees were selected. But starting with 1958, the Academy added a new step into the process. The new step was for voters to rank their ten favorite songs out of however many songs were deemed eligible that year. Using that preferential counting method the Academy's accountants now presented the top 10 vote-getters instead of announcing the final five, essentially a short list of the year's best songs. The next step was for music branch members to hear those 10 songs again and then rank their top five, and the results of that second balloting process would give us that year's five official nominees. The Academy didn't publicly release each year's short list, but kept those lists in their archives, beginning with 1958 and going all the way to 1979, when the Academy stopped using the preliminary voting system. Thanks to Meg DeWall and Libby Worden at the Academy's Margaret Herrick Library, I have those short lists, and will be talking about them for the next 20 episodes. I won't talk about all the 10 songs on each short list, But you will know about some of the songs that got oh so close to a nomination. And I think that will inform us on the way the music branch was thinking at the time. Again, a big thanks to the librarians at the Margaret Herrick Library for providing this information. As we learned in the last episode, Elvis Presley was doing his best to revive the movie musical, using rock and roll to tell the story in Jailhouse Rock. It turned out to be a pretty big hit, making $4 million at the box office. It's not the Mega Millions that The Bridge on the River Kwai or Old Yeller made in 1958. It's half of what The King and I made in 1956 and just a third of what White Christmas earned in 1954. Before a black-and-white musical film starring a new singer made for just $1 million, it was a success. MGM, the distributor of Jailhouse Rock, had been the king of movie musicals since the 1930s, thanks in no small part to Judy Garland. She was no longer a part of MGM, but Arthur Freed was. The prolific musical producer was responsible for An American in Paris, *Singin' in the Rain, Meet Me in St. Louis, and many more musicals that won Oscars and were very much loved by the public. Usually, it was Judy Garland or Gene Kelly that got the most press on those movies, and Arthur Freed was just the guy behind the scenes turning out quality products. His latest movie musical idea had the potential to be another big success, but the road to making it happen was not as smooth. Alan J. Lerner had brought the idea of An American in Paris to Freed, and that turned out to be a monster hit. This time it was Freed who brought the idea to Lerner. While he was getting My Fair Lady ready for its Broadway debut, Lerner was convinced to make an original movie musical in the same vein as My Fair Lady. The French novel Gigi featured a young girl who is being taught how to be a courtesan, which is a fancy way of describing a woman who latches onto a sugar daddy. Lerner had one problem. The rights to the novel were being held by theater producer Gilbert Miller and Anita Luce, who adapted the novel for a non-musical version on Broadway. Freed didn't let money stand in the way, paying close to $100,000 for the rights. Now that turned out to be the easy part. Lerner had a tough time convincing his songwriting partner, Frederick Lowe, to work on a Hollywood movie. Lowe much preferred the solitary working environment that Broadway provided. He didn't like the idea of, quote, dozens of people with ten ears telling me what kind of song to write, end quote, which he said rarely happened with Broadway shows. Lerner was able to convince Lowe to work on Gigi with the prospect of moving their working locale to Paris. Within a few months, they had written three songs for Maurice Chevalier and had many more ready for director Vincente Minnelli to hear by the end of summer 1957. All of that work to write 11 songs in the span of four months, and supervise the recording of those songs took its toll on Frederick Lowe. He suffered a severe heart attack on February 26, 1958, about three months before the film's premiere, but was able to recover to almost normal health. His heart attack was reported on page one of newspapers in New York, where ads for My Fair Lady were still appearing, and in Los Angeles, where the press was buzzing about the upcoming premiere of Gigi. The hard work that Lerner and Lowe put into the song score for Gigi is very evident. Every song is integral to the plot, giving the characters a chance to tell their feelings in ways that simple dialogue could not. One of the trademarks of their songwriting was the song-speak style, which meant characters often spoke their way through songs more than sang them. Louis Jordan, who plays Gigi's friend-turned-love-interest Gaston, speaks his way through most of the songs, not surprising since he wasn't a trained singer. The one song that Jordan sings all the way through is the title song, and the one that became the film's Oscar nominee. Gigi the song turned out to be the most difficult one for Lerner and Lowe to create. It was a pivotal moment in the film when Gaston realizes that he's in love with Gigi. As Lerner tells it in his autobiography, he was sitting on the toilet while Lowe was hammering out the melody on the piano in the next room. Lowe had been searching for the right melody for days. Suddenly, Lerner heard something he liked and asked Lowe to play it again. Within hours, the song was born. It flows seamlessly from a scene that has Gaston trying to reconcile his feelings after seeing tomboyish Gigi in an elegant dress. He chastises her for wearing it, then storms out. She shouldn't be wearing those clothes because she's a girl, not a woman. He mocks her pigtails and sticky fingers, calling her a scamp and a rat, before realizing that she had blossomed like a flower. It's as close as songwriters could come to creating a Shakespeare soliloquy. And then, Gaston sings the title song without all the bombast and anger that he carried earlier. Setting it in one of Paris's beautiful parks, with a flowing fountain behind Louis Jourdan, also helps sell this song's beauty.
2: But, but, there's sweeter music when she speaks, isn't there? A different bloom about her cheeks, isn't there? Could I be wrong? Could it be so? Oh, where, oh, where did Gigi go? Gigi, am I a fool without a mind, or have I merely been too blind to realize? Oh, Gigi, why you've been growing up before my eyes. Gigi, you're not at all that funny, awkward little girl I knew. Oh, no. Overnight there's been a breathless change in you. Oh, Gigi, while you were trembling on the brink, was I out yonder somewhere blinking at a star? Oh, Gigi, have I been standing up too close or back too far? When did your sparkle turn to fire, and your warmth become desire? Oh, what miracle has made you the way you are? Gigi. Gigi. Gigi Oh, no I was mad Not to have seen The shame in you trembling on the brink was I out yonder somewhere blinking at a star Oh Gigi have I been standing up too close or back too far When did your sparkle turn to fire and your warmth become desire Oh what Miracle has made
1: you the way you are. As I said, Gigi is one of the few songs in the film in which the lyrics are melodically performed, as in, not partially spoken and partially sung. And it would be what Broadway fans would call the 11 o'clock number, a song in which the lead character makes a major realization that causes a complete plot change. In this case, Gaston realizes that Gigi would be his perfect mistress, afforded all the luxuries he can give her. The relationship has changed from platonic friendship to something resembling love at that point in the film. Many of the songs in Gigi have become classics. Maurice Chevalier's three songs in the film have become iconic, mostly due to his performances— and it's surprising that neither of them were nominated for the Oscar. In fact, it might be surprising that Gigi did not achieve the seemingly impossible feat of getting two songs nominated from the movie. There were no explicit rules forbidding a film from receiving two song nominations, but perhaps it was an unspoken rule. After the music branch voted for its top 10 original songs of 1958, another song from Gigi made the cut but it wasn't Thank Heaven for Little Girls, a classic song performed by Chevalier. It was The Night They Invented Champagne, a song that Gaston sings with Gigi and her Aunt Alicia when Gigi gets her first taste of champagne after Gigi wins a card game. It's a fun melody by Frederick Lowe, allowing the comedy aspect of the film to come front and center.
2: Not at all. I'd love it. Uh, believe it or not, Mamita, I have a better time with this outrageous brat of yours than anybody in Paris. It'll be marvellous fun. What time tomorrow will we get? Can I watch you play roulette? May I stay up late for supper? Is it awfully, awfully Easy. You'll drive us wild. Stop, you silly child. Is everybody celebrated, full of sin and dissipated? Is it hot enough to blister, will I be, you little sister? Gigi, you are absurd. Now, not another word. Let her gush and jabber let her be enthused. I cannot remember when I have been more amused. Stop,
3: Stop it! nicely invented champagne. It's plain as it can be, they thought of you and me. The night they invented champagne, they absolutely knew that all we'd want to do is fly to the sky on champagne and shout to everyone in sound that since the world began, no woman or man has ever been as happy as we are tonight.
2: The night they invented champagne. It's plain as it can be, they, they thought, thought of, of
3: you, you and me. Good the <Sitthed> the night, they invented
2: champagne. Oh. They, they absolutely do. that know all we want to do is fly to the night, sky on champagne and, and shout to everyone, everyone inside That since the world the began, the a woman or a man has ever been as happy as we are
1: Louise Jordan and Hermione Gold provided their own singing voices in The Night They Invented Champagne, but it was Betty Wand who sang for Leslie Caron's Gigi. Betty Wand had a great career in the 1940s as the female voice of many big band orchestras in the United States, and when she was hired by MGM to provide the singing voice of Esther Williams in the movie Easy to Love, it started a new career that led to dubbing for Leslie Caron in Gigi followed by her most famous job as the singing voice of Rita Moreno's Anita in West Side Story. So, why didn't The Night They Invented Champagne earn an Oscar nomination alongside the title song from Gigi? As I said earlier, it's likely there was an unspoken policy that only one song per film gets nominated. Or the simplest explanation is that the songs that did get nominated were better. With movie musicals dying slowly, or at least showing little signs of life at the movie theater, Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe returned to the Broadway stage and created the hit show Camelot in 1960. After Camelot premiered, Lowe retired in Palm Springs, California, vowing not to return to show business, until he was asked to touch up the song score for the Broadway adaptation of Gigi in 1973. And that's when he was convinced to also make a return to Hollywood with Lerner for another original song score. And we'll learn more about that later in this podcast. Vincente Minnelli, who had divorced Judy Garland in 1951, had another big film released in 1958. It wasn't a musical, though Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin were two of its stars. The movie was Some Came Running, and it was MGM's attempt to find the same success that Columbia Pictures had with From Here to Eternity. The script was based on a novel by James Jones, who also wrote From Here to Eternity*. Sinatra's only Academy Award came from his performance in From Here to Eternity*, and perhaps he was hoping for the nomination that didn't come his way last year for The Joker is Wild. The film did receive a lot of Academy Award nominations, five in fact, but none of them went to Sinatra. Shirley MacLaine received her first acting nomination for the movie, as did supporting players Arthur Kennedy, and Martha Heyer. And angling for a consecutive Oscar win were songwriters Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn, who wrote the song To Love and Be Loved. Sinatra was going into work for the movie Some Came Running after a very successful concept album that included songs that took the listener with Sinatra on a world tour. The album was Come Fly With Me, and the title song took a while to become a signature song for Sinatra but it would eventually be indelibly linked to Old Blue Eyes, thanks to the work of songwriters Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen. The Oscar-nominated song from Some Came Running won't get the same notoriety. Because Sinatra's character is not a singer, it would be very odd to see him suddenly warble out a song out of nowhere. So, the song performance comes from The Old Standby, a singing group at a nightclub. In this case, it's a trio of singers in Terre Haute, Indiana, where Sinatra's character goes with Dean Martin and Shirley MacLaine for a night of entertainment. If the opening credits had not mentioned the song, I would have thought that the songs the nightclub singers perform were previously written. The song can barely be heard over the dialogue between Sinatra and MacLaine in the first part, then between Sinatra and the actress playing his niece, Betty Lou Keim. I wonder if Van Houston and Kahn knew their song would be barely heard in the film, and if they had any influence to try and give it more prominence, like playing it on the radio in a particular scene. As it is, the song seems to be presented enough for the Academy to allow it to be eligible for a nomination. It wouldn't make any sense to play it here, since you wouldn't catch too much of the song. So, let's hear the version by the singer that first recorded the song for commercial sale. Mr Frank Sinatra
3: to That's what life's all about Keeps the stars coming out What makes a sad heart sing The birds take wing To love and be loved That's what living is for Makes me want you the more The more we cling Goal is... sheltered and safe from the storm to be cozy and ever
1: So even though it wouldn't have been logical for Sinatra to sing the song "And Some Came Running, that didn't keep him from stepping into a recording studio and giving it his personal touch. Van Heusen uses a more classical approach to his music instead of dipping into the jazz genre, which might have made the song more popular. Sinatra's version of To Love and Be Loved is nowhere to be found on the Billboard Hot 100 list, a rarity for a Sinatra song and a little surprising since the film Some Came Running made money after its release in late December 1958, earning a total of $5 million. Kahn and Van Heusen wrote two other movie songs from 1958, including the title song for the popular romantic film Indiscreet with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. The movie was a hit, and the title song might have been a shoe-in for an Oscar nomination, if the lyrics had been performed in the film, according to Academy rules. Van Heusen's melody is a big part of the underscore, with its rising piano notes doubling as romantic gestures and tension builders. But there is no true song performance. There might have been one planned during a scene at a fancy dance event, but again, only the melody is heard. So Van Heusen and Kahn had to settle for just the one nomination in 1958. Sammy Faye and Paul Francis Webster were having a better year than Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen. Not only did they get two songs nominated for the Oscar in 1958, but both songs were more popular with the public than To Love and Be Loved, but only barely more popular, as we'll discover shortly. We'll talk first about the title song to the English-language adaptation of the French novel A Certain Smile, starring newcomer Christine Carrere and veteran Joan Fontaine. The movie was a major flop, mainly because the plot watered down many of the sexual aspects of the novel and changed some plot details at the request of the production code. For a film about a woman who has affairs with two men, it doesn't feel scandalous, and that's not because I'm looking at it in the 21st century. In 1958, critics called Carrere's performance remarkable and affecting and praised her restraint, which is not the word I would use for the majority of Carrere's scenes. But the title song rises above the film, thanks in no small part to the performance in the film by Johnny Mathis playing himself singing at a nightclub in Paris.
4: What do you mean down a crooked little street in Paris? Vendors who sell pretty flowers that tell of spring. Once in a while you may meet a certain smile in Paris. So excitingly gay that it seems to say Sherry, fall in love with me A certain smile A certain face Can lead an unsuspecting heart on a merry chase A fleeting glance Can say so many lovely things Suddenly know why Paris sings, you love a while, and when love goes, you try to hide the tears inside with a cheerful pose. But in the hush of night, exactly like a bitter sweet refrain, comes that certain smile to haunt your heart again. And when love goes You try to hide the tears inside With a cheerful pose But in the hush of night Exactly like a bittersweet refrain Comes that certain smile to haunt your heart. Oh.
1: The movie was one of 38 films that 20th Century Fox released in 1958 and one of many movies that did not turn a profit. The Fox Music Department can thank radio DJs for playing A Certain Smile, often in the radio, in the summer of 1958, ranking as the 53rd most played song of 1958. The second nomination by Fane and Webster came from another little-seen film called Marjorie Morningstar. It had the potential to be a big hit with Gene Kelly and Natalie Wood in the lead roles. But the age gap between Kelly and Wood perplexed critics, including the New York Times, who pretty much disqualified the potential romance by saying, Although Mr. Kelly appears a mite uncomfortable in his assignment, he plays it with understanding. That's a backhanded compliment if I ever heard one. At 46 years old, Gene Kelly was not the same elegant and athletic dancer as he was in 1950s Singing in the Rain, and as I mentioned earlier, the musicals that called for the dances that he made iconic in the 40s and 50s were no longer packing them into theaters. Marjorie Morningstar was his attempt to try out a new chapter in dramatic films, with a little bit of dancing to please his longtime fans. The $3 million in box office neither encourage nor discourage Kelly to keep acting in dramatic roles. At least he gets to sing in Marjorie Morningstar, performing the nominated song A Very Precious Love. The story of Marjorie Morningstar is somewhat similar to A Certain Smile. Natalie Wood, like Christine Carrere, plays a young college woman who is compelled to marry as society feels she should, but she has eyes for someone who doesn't conform to the plans of her Jewish parents. Like Carrere's character, Wood's Marjorie falls in love with an older man, specifically the 46-year-old entertainer Noel, played by Gene Kelly. We've seen a lot of restrictions eased by movie censors in the past five years, especially after Otto Preminger and other directors dared to defy censors. Falling in love with an older man wasn't necessarily taboo, but it was eye-raising in the late 1950s, which might have been why the movie didn't do well. A Very Precious Love is a song that Kelly's character Noel has written for an upcoming Broadway show, a song he seemingly plays often at the upstate New York resort where he works during the summer. Marjorie works at the girls camp across the lake, and she snuck over late one night and during the song, finds herself attracted to Noel's physical looks and artistic talents.
0: Jones, a show he's writing for Broadway. A
3: very precious love Is what you are to me A stairway to a star A night in Shangri-La of ecstasy Lanterns of gold lanterns are blue twinkle Great, isn't the
4: he? there's no such person for heaven's sakes
0: what else does he do well let's see he knows opera history literature
2: philosophy he speaks foreign languages Writes songs with his left hand Is the greatest dancer living and, and and i'm his assistant
3: he's saying you should not Let lanterns lose their glow And hearts can break So hold me close, my darling Then kiss me
1: There's a reprise of the song almost halfway through the movie, when the resort staff are singing it around a campfire near the lake. In the middle of the song, we get a dialogue scene between Marjorie and Wally, a member of the entertainment staff who has been carrying a torch for Marjorie. As the staff hums Fane's melody, Wally vents about not being good enough for Marjorie, though he will always wait for her to come to him. The last line of the song, which we hear at the end of the scene, Perfectly encapsulates Wally's feelings. Very
3: precious love is
2: what you are
3: to me. A stairway to a star, a night in Chambord.
0: Zai, I, Princess, a wicked witch has put me into this form of a bespectacable toad. One kiss and I spring erect a handsome social director in a black sweater.
2: Wally, getting yourself drunk isn't going to make you a social director.
0: I am not drunk. I am a man with problems. Serious problems. You too? It's terrible, isn't it? What? Wishing for something you can't have.
3: Thank you, Marjorie. Always remember that kiss. Well,
2: that was the first and the last,
0: Walla. Maybe it won't be the last. Maybe it'll happen again.
2: Maybe. Sometime when there are colored lanterns again.
3: Noel old airman doesn't need colored lanterns, does he?
2: All right, now.
3: looks colored lanterns, talks colored lanterns. Maybe that's all he is, a mass of colored lanterns. You know
2: you've really had three or four too many.
3: Let me tell you something, this Morning
2: Glory. You'll come to me when I'm a successful playwright. You'll come begging for a job from Wally Ronkin, famous author. You know something?
3: I'll give you the part,
0: I'll give it to you in gratitude for your one generous kiss under the colored lanterns. And give
3: your precious love, your very precious love to me.
1: There's one more performance of A Very Precious Love at the end of the film, with Kelly singing the song as he did earlier at the summer resort in front of adoring fans. That prompts Marjorie to realize that Noel will always be the same person, and she leaves him for a hopeful future with Wally. The Ames brothers made a commercial record of A Very Precious Love, and it somewhat caught the public's ear, charting as high as number 23 on the Billboard charts. That was the best-received version of the song that has been recorded and released in early 1958 reading out Doris Day's version and Slim Whitman's version. And now on to the fifth nominated song of 1958. Cary Grant showed his comedic chops in the romantic comedy Houseboat, alongside Italian star Sophia Loren. She had signed a five-picture deal with Paramount in 1958, her first year in Hollywood, and Houseboat was the fourth of her four movies released in 1958. Grant and Loren already had some history before working on Houseboat. While filming The Pride and the Passion, Grant and Loren had started a love affair that didn't end well. Despite this, they gave decent performances in Houseboat as Tom, a diplomat with the State Department, and Cinzia, an Italian woman who is hired as the maid to his three children after his wife dies. The movie is hard to watch because the three children behave like brats and don't make themselves lovable enough to identify with their hatred toward their father. Tom tries to play matchmaker for Cinzia, setting her up with an Italian-American named Angelo who sells them the titular houseboat. But Angelo believes Cinzia is looking for marriage, and he runs out on their date to the country club. Tom and Cinzia go to the country club dance together, and that's where we hear the nominated song Almost In Your Arms. Sam Cooke performs the song while Tom and Chinzia dance, though we never see him. I can't imagine the song is coming from a record player, so Sam Cooke had to be there, especially because we saw an orchestra in an earlier scene. This is the type of country club that wouldn't have allowed the African American Cooke to be a member back in 1958, and maybe they wouldn't have allowed him to perform there either. Perhaps there is footage of Sam Cooke singing in the film, and perhaps studio executives decide to cut any shots of Cooke out of the film in order to not ruffle any feathers. And maybe I'm looking too deeply into this, but there has to be an explanation why the dancers can hear him singing, even if we as the audience can't see him.
3: Oh, it's a lovely evening. Thank you so much for bringing
2: me. Cynthia, something perhaps I should tell you. Yes? What? What? Is something you wish to Tonight. tell me?
3: The mood is right. I'm almost in your heart. There is one sigh, one word, and I will rush to you. Have you been, Tom?
4: Embrace Say that certain word. Sigh that certain sigh with all my heart to your arms I'll fly It's strange how we are changed by things that seem so small One look can write a book One touch can say It's all We've known Those nights alone
1: now we fly almost in your
4: arms, almost in your arms
1: to stay. Hey, Tom.
2: Tom. Carolyn just told us some good news. Congratulations. Congratulations.
1: Tom begins to fall in love with Chinzia during this dance, even though he had just promised the sister of his dead wife that he would marry her. Chinzia storms off. But Tom reconciles with her and they kiss. The next morning, we hear Chinzia singing a little bit of almost in your arms before she prepares breakfast for the children. Almost In Your Arms was written by Ray Evans and Jay Livingston, who returned to Paramount to work on Houseboat after ending their 10-year contract at the studio. This showed that there were no hard feelings between the songwriters and Paramount, but the result did not turn out to be a successful one. Sam Cooke's recording of Almost In Your Arms was the B-side of Win Your Love For Me, and neither song resonated much with the public. It looks like we've approached a list of nominees in which we don't have at least one song that ranked in the top ten on the Billboard charts. Looking at the list of the most popular songs that year, rock and roll was the dominant genre, and Hollywood still wasn't ready to catch up. Actor Robert Mitchum made a play for an Oscar nomination as a songwriter, writing the lyrics for the title song for his Western film, Thunder Road. Don Ray, who earned two Oscar nominations for Abbott and Costello's songs back in the 1940s, wrote the music for the song. Unfortunately, Mitchum and Ray must not have read all of the Academy's rules for eligibility because most of the music was borrowed from a Norwegian song called Gamel Rain As every song submitted as an Oscar contender is vetted by the music branch, the members must have known that the song was not completely original and the songwriters might have admitted to their borrowing the melody. So Mitchum lost out on a chance to be the first person to earn an Oscar nomination for acting and songwriting. While the ceremony for the 31st Academy Awards was being planned, another show was in the works to compete with the Oscars, the Tonys, and the Emmys as the best industry award show in the United States. The first Grammy Awards were set for May 1959 in Los Angeles and New York City to honor the best musical accomplishments that were released in 1958. Like the first Academy Awards ceremony, the first Grammy event was not the big extravaganza that we're used to today with just 22 categories across various genres. The big awards back then, as they are now, were the Record of the Year, Album of the Year, and Song of the Year Awards. Record of the Year honored only the song performers in the earlier years. Song of the Year was specifically for the songwriters, very similar to the Best Song Oscar. And in that first year, a movie song was among the nominees for Song of the Year. Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe picked up that Grammy nomination for writing the song Gigi, which meant they had a chance to add a Grammy to their already full awards mantle. The notable nominees were the Volare, the Italian song that was the most popular song of 1958, the optimistic Catch a Falling Star, and the sultry jazz hit Fever. The Grammy ceremony was taking place a month after the Academy Awards, so Lerner and Lowe had to sit through the Oscars first on April 6, 1959. Unlike the previous year, none of the original performers of the song nominees were on hand to sing at the Oscars. And for the first time in nearly a decade, All of the nominated songs were thrown together into one medley, a directive from show producer Jerry Wald, in order to finish the show on time. Dean Martin, who was not one of the song performers, was joined by Sophia Loren to announce the winner of the song award after the medley. Loren announced that Gigi was the winner, the fourth award that Gigi the film had already won that evening. Alan J. Lerner, picking up his second Oscar and first for songwriting, simply offered his thanks to the Academy. Lowe had a bit more to say in his acceptance speech, making an allusion to the heart attack he suffered 14 months earlier.
2: This is a very great honor. Thank you very much. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my somewhat damaged heart.
1: This was only the fifth time an MGM film had won the Oscar for Best Song, a surprising statistic given the studio's rich history with musicals and song creation. One of the things the studio didn't have going for it, obviously, was a team of songwriters under contract like Paramount went tad with Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. Nor did they ever snag Sammy Kahn for any work. Lerner would be back on the Oscar stage later that night, taking the Adapted Screenplay Award for writing the script for Gigi. That's three Oscars for Lerner, all in different categories. Remember, he won the Story and Screenplay Oscar in 1951 for An American in Paris. He'll produce another screenplay based on the book he wrote for the Broadway show My Fair Lady when Warner Brothers brings that tale to the screen in 1954. No original songs will be written for that movie, though I'm sure Lerner tried very hard. To convince Frederick Lowe to come out of retirement for at least one new song. Gigi won nine Oscars that night, the most any film had ever won before. It also won all of its nine nominations, the first time a film had done that, and the only Best Picture winner to do so, until 2003, when the third film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy won all of its 11 nominations. I mentioned that this was Arthur Freed's last big musical for MGM, and it seems that its Oscar wins did nothing to revive the movie musical. Arthur Freed would produce one more musical at MGM in 1960 called Bells Are Ringing, but Freed's ability to bring audiences into theaters with his big, splashy musicals were in an end. Gigi made $6.5 million in its initial theatrical run, which was deemed a success, but musicals were no longer riding the top of the box office charts and MGM closed the freed unit at MGM and poured money into the big epics. Just one year later, Ben-Hur was MGM's big movie, and its $33 million in box office was the last nail in the coffin for MGM's musical department. MGM had one more opportunity to celebrate Gigi with a possible win at the first Grammy Awards for Song of the Year. But Lerner and Lowe were denied the chance to have three of the four industry awards, as Volare won Song of the Year and Record of the Year as well. So movie songs didn't have a successful showing at the first Grammy Awards, and without giving anything away, they will have a much bigger presence at the Grammys when we enter the 1960s. Even so, Hollywood songwriters will still regard the Oscar as the top award in the industry. We'll see how the two awards merge in the upcoming episodes of the Best Song podcast. Thanks for singing along with me on today's episode. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not
0: authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.